the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blend, although off, is producing. Today we're going to talk with Rick Langer. He's the co-author of Winsome Persuasion, Christian Influence in a Post-Christian World. And don't we need that? Hans von Spakovsky will also join us in the 5 o'clock hour. He is an authority on a wide range of uh, issues, including civil rights, civil justice, the First Amendment, immigration. We're going to talk about the Supreme Court agreeing to hear uh, President Trump's travel ban case and some of the comments they've already made that indicate how they might Uh, vote on that. Although the session begins in October, it it seems to me it's going to be a moot point by the time they arrive at some sort of decision. But that's beside the point, I suppose. We'll also talk with Matt Staver. He's the founder and chairman of Liberty Council. We'll talk about the Supreme Court ruling in favor of Trinity Lutheran versus Comer. um, uh, In that case, the U.S. Supreme Court's uh, decision to hear the Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission case having to do with religious liberty. And we'll talk with Marie Fishpaw. She's the director of domestic studies at uh, Heritage on the Senate health care bill. Uh, she says it's better than status quo, but misses major opportunities. Well, we know, and we'll talk about this in just a moment, that uh, a vote on that will not uh, take place before the 4th of July, but more on that in just a few moments. Well, the Congressional Budget Office projects that the Senate health bill will cut the deficit by $321 billion over the next decade. The number of uninsured will rise, however, to $22 million. Now, is that a consequence of health insurance no longer being available to them? Is it a consequence of the absence of a mandate in which people say, I don't have to buy it, I can use my own discretion, and therefore I won't? It's a mixture of the two. The average premiums will decrease, according to the CBO, by 20% in 2026, um, Hugh Hewitt has argued that the failure to pass a bill would lead to almost certain doom for many Republicans up for reelection. And while uh, those who are on the public Republican side would love to see them reelected, those on the Democrat side would love to see Democrats elected. To me, that's uh, far less relevant than whether or not this is a good plan that will benefit the whole country. Well, the Senate Republicans health bill would reduce the federal deficit, as I mentioned, eventually lead to lower premiums, but would result in millions more Americans being uninsured a decade from now. This is according to fresh analysis from Capitol Hill's uh, budget office. Well, the bill's highly anticipated score was released this afternoon or rather yesterday afternoon, immediately became part of the Senate's raging uh, Health care debate as GOP leaders scramble to win over reluctant Republicans who aren't quite sure they support the bill and tee up a vote to repeal and replace much of Obamacare as early as this week. Well, you can put a stop there. It's not going to happen this week, and I'll explain in a moment. The Congressional Budget Office estimate uh, estimate rather is an important factor, but its impact could be mixed. In terms of coverage, the CBO and Joint Committee on Taxation Report said the proposal would increase the number of uninsured by 22 million uh, in 2026 relative to the current law. This is primarily because the penalty for not having insurance would be eliminated, the analysis noted, adding lower Medicaid spending and smaller subsidies also would reduce 
reduce enrollment in later years. But the budget impact could be... um, appealing to fiscal conservatives in large part due to Medicaid changes. The report said the legislation would cut deficits over the next decade by $321 billion. Our plan will help address Obamacare's ballooning costs for consumers by lowering premiums over the over time rather and cutting taxes. And today's estimate confirms that. That's a quote from Senator John Cornyn. He said, I look forward to continuing to work with my colleagues this week as we get closer to finally replacing this failed law with better care at a cost that uh, Texans will be able to afford. The report said the bill would increase average uh, premiums in the non-group market leading to uh, up to 2020 and lower average premiums after that year relative to the current law. In 2020, the average, and this is what the estimate says, the average premiums for benchmark plans for single individuals would be around 30% lower than under current law. A combination of factors would lead to that decrease. Most important, the smaller share of benefits paid by the uh, benchmark plans and federal funds provided to directly reduce premiums, the estimate says. In some ways, the score was better for the Senate bill than the related House bill passed last month, projecting more deficit savings and better enrollment. But foes are not impressed. And of course, you wouldn't expect them to be. That's what happens in Washington. Well, all the talk last week and early this week was that the Senate was going to try to roll this out by the 4th of July. Well, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell today delayed that vote on his Obamacare overhaul plan with some dwindling report as the reason. This is from rank-and-file Republicans, touching off what what's sure to be a furious scramble to revise the bill and win over GOP holdouts. Now, the president called uh, members of the Senate Republicans to the White House, and they sat down, in fact, may still be talking, for all I know, about how to move forward. But uh, the Kentucky Republican, Mitch McConnell, uh, he said that we're going to continue this discussion after a closed-door meeting with Republicans where he informed them of the delay. We will not be on the bill this week. The vote is not expected until after the 4th of July recess. Well, I think a lot of observers thought that was a bit unrealistic, given the fact that the uh, text of the bill was only rolled out days earlier, and that was the very thing they criticized the Democrats for having done when they were in power. Well, President Trump, meanwhile, summoned all GOP senators to a White House House meeting this afternoon in hopes of determining the uh, way forward. And while McConnell said he remains optimistic, the delay is another setback for Washington Republicans, considering all of them, including Trump, campaigned on a promise to repeal and replace the former President Barack Obama's signature 2010 health care law. Well, GOP leaders had... Uh, Uh, had wanted to bring the bill to the floor before lawmakers head out to their districts this break, Uh, not only because they had promised it, but because, you know, holding a town hall meeting without having done what you promised is uh, pretty unpleasant. This spring, House Speaker Paul Ryan also had to delay a final vote on his chamber's overhaul bill upon realizing he didn't have the votes. It eventually passed there. McConnell needs at least 50 of his 52 senators to vote in favor of the bill, but his problems began almost immediately after he introduced the bill late last week when five GOP uh, members publicly said they would not support the measure. Five, count them. Support further dwindled Monday after a financial analysis from the CBO, which is nonpartisan, projected that 22 million more Americans would be uninsured by 2026 if the measure replaces Obamacare. McConnell apparently delayed the vote upon realizing he didn't even have votes to call for the initial vote to start the debate on the measure. At least five GOP senators, Susan Collins of Maine, Dean Heller of Nevada, Mike Lee of Utah, Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, and Rand Paul of Kentucky indicated after the CBO analysis that they won't vote in favor of starting debate. 
They'd like to continue discussion and further refine the bill. Now, I heard someone earlier today suggest that the CBO rate Obamacare as it currently stands moving forward, and that might give some perspective on uh, the Senate and, for that matter, the House version of the overhaul. I think that might help where we stand today, given um, the... Uh, Iterations of the legislation that we have seen, the fact that many of the insurers have pulled out long before the Trump administration, but that's continued into the administration. Uh, Anyway, trying to gain some understanding and perspective on this thing, I think, is getting a bit more challenging. But we'll certainly continue to follow the story as the Senate ultimately comes up with what they uh, determine to be their final bill worthy of debate and a vote. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but I want to remind you that coming up later this hour, Rick Langer will be my guest. He's the co-author of Winsome Persuasion, Christian Influence in a Post-Christian World. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we're going to talk with Rick Langer. He's the co-author of Winsome Persuasion, Christian Influence in a Post-Christian World. Um, his uh, co-author is uh, Tim Muehlhoff, and the foreword is uh, written by Quentin Schultz. That might mean, uh, those names might mean something to some of you. Anyway, that's coming up in our next segment. Also in the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to talk about... Um, uh, the uh, fact that the Supreme Court has agreed to hear the the president's travel ban case. There were some comments made early on indicating the direction at least some members are likely to go. Uh, the problem is the timeline. I think they convene in uh, in October, and it may be a moot point by then, but we'll talk about what's uh, what's happened and what that might mean. Matt Staver will join us uh, in the 5 o'clock hour. He's the founder and chairman of the Liberty Council. The Supreme Court has ruled in favor of Trinity Lutheran Church in their daycare uh, it's a pretty significant case because it goes to uh, the heart of what it means um, in the First Amendment with regard to religion and being uh, treated equally with those who don't fall in that category. We're also going to talk with uh, or talk about rather the Supreme Court's decision to hear the case uh, case of a baker. This one in Colorado. Uh, in the case Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission. And this is very similar to what we've seen here in Oregon and in uh, in Washington as well with regard to individuals who do not want to participate in a particular event uh, that violates their religious convictions. And we'll find out how important this case is likely to be. As you know, the Supreme Court can rule very narrowly or broadly, and the implications of a decision uh, can be applied in, in either way. So we'll talk with Matt Staver about those two cases. And we'll talk with Marie Fishpaw. She's the director of domestic studies at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about the Senate health care bill. We've mentioned a little bit of what's happened over the last couple of days in the CBO report. But what she and others have pointed out is that it's better than the status quo, but it misses some major opportunities. Now, the fact that the Senate has decided to delay moving forward on it, which I think sounds reasonable to a lot of people who thought uh, voting before the 4th of July mimicked what uh, Republicans criticized when the Democrats acted similarly quickly. Um, but that's going to be put off until after. I think it's important that promises are kept in terms of addressing the uh, the needs um, created by uh, the Affordable Care Act. But to move quickly without broad understanding is probably not the right course to take. Anyway, we're going to talk about uh, the missed opportunity, she says, is in this Senate version of the bill. So that's coming up in the five o'clock hour as well. Well, CNN, in an effort to restore some semblance of journalistic integrity, accepted the resignations of three veteran reporters. And these were, I think, some pretty impressive reporters after it had been uh, had to retract their latest Trump Putin collusion uh, news story. The report 
alleged a nefarious meeting between the Russians and an associate of Donald Trump, uh, claiming a single anonymous source. Well, not only was the story retracted, but CNN also issued an apology to Anthony Scaramucci, the uh, the target of that story. Well, the three who resigned are reported uh, reporter Tom Frank, editor Eric Lichtblue, and executive um, editor Lex Harris. Now, CNN didn't admit that the story was bogus, but only that it did not meet CNN's editorial standards and has been retracted. And that's uh, an internal investigation by CNN management found that some standard editorial processes were not followed. Some standard editorial processes. Well, after CNN retracted the article, it circulated an internal memo explicitly warning reporters to gain approval before publishing anything involving Russia. CNN Money Executive Director Rich um, Barberry, he warned that no one should publish any content involving Russia without coming to me and Jason Farkas. He continued, this applies to social, video, editorial and money stream. Uh, no exceptions. Well, in an unusually candid admission, CNN producer John Bonfield says the Trump-Putin collusion reporting is mostly, well, he uses an expletive, um, but you get the idea. Actually, it has been nothing more than uh, than that since the first report. Of course, the real collusion posing the greatest threat to liberty um, has been the uh, the way the story has been uh, re- reported and maintained. Now, um, I posted on my Facebook page uh, a bit of that conversation, and I think it's important to note that the producer, uh, the audio of the statements made from a top CNN producer caught on tape were released on Monday evening by James O'Keefe of Project Veritas organization. Uh, it's not James O'Keefe himself, but it's the project that he heads. Now, the tape reveals a secretly recorded conversation between an undercover reporter and CNN supervising uh, producer John Bonfield. Now, I tried to get uh, someone to talk with me about this to try to clarify a CNN supervising producer. How important a role is that to uh, contributing to decisions made by CNN and to try to confirm the credibility of all of this? But in the recorded conversation... Bonifield divulges a ton of personal opinions on how CNN has been covering the investigation into whether or not Russia interfered with last year's presidential election. He was unaware of the fact that he was being recorded. He admitted multiple times to the undercover reporter that he and the CNN team in general knew the whole thing was mostly expletive, but added that uh, they were focused on spinning the Trump collusion narrative for ratings. Now, I suppose we shouldn't be surprised uh, too much. We might be outraged, but not too terribly surprised the mix of entertainment and journalism and um, the effort to uh, maintain or to gain high ratings is nothing new. But he goes on to say, even if Russia was trying to swing an election, we try to swing their elections. Bonifield said our CIA is doing bad word all the time. We're out there trying to manipulate governments. Well, in a separate setting, he was all too comfortable uh, giving his honest assessment of the whole scandal, saying it's mostly expletive like we don't have any big giant proof but then they say well there's still an investigation going on i don't know if they were finding anything we would not we would know about it Uh, the way these leaks happens they'd leak it it'd leak if there was something really good it would leak well he goes on to give what is essentially his opinion but he does suggest that uh, for the sake of ratings this story has been it goes into much greater detail i don't have time to go into now but it goes into greater detail about how uh, editorial decisions are made about what uh, what's covered and what's not. For example, um, when a, a big breaking story comes, they'll give it a day, a day and a half, but then they're instructed to go back to 
uh, to Russia because that is a big ratings draw. Now, my guess is this is not exclusive to CNN. This is what we see not only in um, in uh, broadcast media, but perhaps in print media as well, which is a reminder that we need to be vigilant about what we hear. We need to be critical thinkers and um recognize that everything we hear and read and see, um, not everything that we hear and read and see, can be taken on face value. This was one individual who who is within apparently the inner circle suggesting that that's what uh, we're seeing at CNN. And again, uh, my guess is it's not exclusive um, to them. Uh, But again, on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page, I did uh, post uh, part of that conversation. You can listen in uh, for yourself. And my point in in uh, Posting it wasn't to suggest that uh, this proves that the president and his associates are innocent. I don't know if they are or not. That's not my point. My point is when we're supposed to have objective information uh, providers who are not being objective, that undermines their credibility and our ability to better understand what's happening around us. It seems like there's enough there, there in a variety of areas that you don't have to embellish or emphasize something for which there is little or no information if Mr. Bonifield is to be taken seriously. Well, up next, we're going to talk with Rick Langer. He's the co-author of Winsome Persuasion, Christian Influence in a Post-Christian World. And it uh, it's uh, designed to help us think through how we present ourselves, not just as uh, good orators of this or that, but in the context of our Christian faith. How do we function in a persuasive way, in a winsome way, to a culture that is increasingly moving in an opposite direction? So we'll look forward to Uh, talking with him in just a few moments. And uh, a bit later, we'll talk uh, about some of the Supreme Court decisions that have been made over the last uh, day or two that are fairly significant, not fairly, very significant. The um, the president's travel ban. We'll talk about the Trinity Lutheran uh, Church decision, as well as the Supreme Court deciding it will hear the case of a baker from Colorado and whether or not uh, he can decline to participate, use his creative ability to promote a particular idea that that conflicts with his religious beliefs so we'll get into uh, to all of that in the uh, uh, in the next hour um also we're going to uh, bring you up to date on the nonprofit tracker that we talked about last week well they have uh, come out with a response to what um they had uh, decided to do and that's to label nonprofit organizations as hate groups and that was the uh, Southern Poverty Law Center had uh, encouraged them to do so. We'll bring you the latest on that and an update on uh, Dan Rice, who is now home from the hospital, and we'll let you know what's happening and uh, what's going to happen moving forward. 30 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 35 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest and his co-author asked the question, how should Christians engage the broader culture? How might we be both persuasive and civil and both challenge the beliefs of others and show love and respect? Isn't that the challenge we all face? Well, they show us examples from history like William Wilberforce and Harriet Beecher Stowe. Winsome Persuasion offers a compelling vision of public engagement that's both shrewd and gracious. Two things we need. Winsome Persuasion is the title of the book, Christian Influence in a Post-Christian World. And my guest, uh, Richard Langer, is a Ph.D., a professor of biblical and theological studies at Talbot, uh, Talbot School of Theology and director of the Office for the Integration of Faith and Learning at Biola University. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Thanks for letting me come and join you and your listeners, Georgina. It's great to be with you. Now, you couldn't have better timing on a book by this title <laughs> and subject. What what led you to write it at this time? I mean, I can think of 15 well, you, reasons, but... <laughs> well, as you can imagine, we, we made a decision to, to write a book like this, you know, two or three years ago, and uh, all that's happened in the in-between times has become more and more urgent. Um, I think Tim and I were both concerned that um, Christians... We were indeed raising our voice in the public square, but it was not persuading anyone, and nor was it winsome. It wasn't attractive. It wasn't compelling. And so for all of the noise and effect we were making with our, with our, our Christian voice, we were having very, very little impact. And indeed, a lot of the impact we had seemed to be negative. We were driving people away rather than, uh, than winning them, and people were being alienated by our arguments rather than being persuaded. And so it was a thing that really came from a felt need just by observing our culture and the, uh, you know, the, the kind of the, the way we were interacting with it in, in the public square. We thought we could do better, so we wanted to make a contribution to help people think a little bit more about how that might work. And I appreciate your mentioning a, mu- mentioning a much broader context. It wasn't just at the election of 2016. This this has been a problem that's been in place uh, for much longer than that, and we would do well yeah. to stop and take stock of how we're presenting ourselves as followers of Christ and whether or not our discourse is, is effective. You make a reference in your introduction to the Czech dissident turned President Vaclav Havel and uh, his rather naive, as someone put it, um, uh, suggestion of how we move, move forward in a less than civil society. Talk a little bit about um, his example and, and what we might learn. Yeah, you know, Hovell's a really interesting guy because he's faced a very, very difficult situation growing up or, uh, you know, coming of age and working in the, in the Eastern Bloc uh, countries and, uh, you know, a very difficult time. And he was a guy who was labeled a dissident and uh, experienced all the things that travel with that. Um, and then he came to power, uh, you know, as part of this Velvet Revolution in the, uh, in, in the Czech Republic. And he just, he, he would hear from people, well, this idea of, of being civil, being nice, it just doesn't work in the real world. The whole idea is that you have to do what, what works. And as he so aptly put it, uh, there's only one way to strive for decency, reason, responsibility, sincerity, civility, and tolerance. And that's decently, reasonably, responsibly, sincerely, civilly, and tolerantly. And I go, it's a beautiful observation. If we want our culture to speak and talk and interact in a different way, we have to be the place where it begins. We we have to start talking that way to others. And if we want to be respected, we need to respect others. If we want to be loved, we need to be able to love others. And and Havel, I think, is a great example of having done that um, with pretty good success. You know, it, it it was remarkable how well that the the revolution there went with with uh, you know no guns or bloodshed. You point out that failed discourse is the starting point of a failed society, and you you remind us how important it is that we take this opportunity seriously and do the the work, uh, if you will, of really preparing ourselves to engage in a way that is consistent with our Christian faith. You write that people who are afraid, unheard, unrepresented, and alienated from their leaders and their neighbors do not make for healthy society, and we have the capacity to at least make a dent in uh, turning the great ship of state perhaps in a different direction that would be um, more favorable. Yeah, and I think like many things in the world, you know, you, sometimes when we look at the great big task, how do we change an entire nation? It seems like an overwhelming challenge. 
But one of the things we point out is that, uh, you know, we begin, we talk about forming counterpublics, which is basically, you know, groups of people who, who see things differently and, and raise their voice together. And, and a lot of times the best place to do it is at the most local level. Uh, you know, and, and you may not be the person who is appointed to, to win a Nobel Peace Prize or to, to you know, to make, uh, uh, you know, speech that's compelling at a national political convention. But you can do things in your own school board. You can do things in your own neighborhood. Uh, and I think that is the real place where I'd love to see people begin and just thinking pragmatically and practically about the things that are kind of near and close at hand and saying, how can I be a voice of charity? How can I hear others? Um, and then how can I convey my message in a way that's at once compelling and, you know, kind of faithfully prophetic? But on the other hand, persuasive and pastorally sensitive to the to the needs of the person I'm talking to. Well, you've answered in part uh, the question: What rhetorical voice uh, we should <laughs> adopt, and where do we begin to find that voice? Yeah, you know, we we note in the book that you, you find in Scripture, just looking at the example of the Holy Spirit, uh, there, there's kind of three different ways that He speaks to us, and sometimes it is a very prophetic message. He's just telling us what is right and wrong, and, you know, there's a call to repentance. But other times it's a much more pastoral sort of a posture where it's coming to us in, in a point of need, and we have, you know, the, the image of the Holy Spirit as our comforter, uh, a person who comes alongside us in the midst of our, our need. And then he's also the one who's the, the persuader. He's the one who woos us and, and brings us to Christ and convicts us concerning what's true. And so I think what's happened is we've sort of uh, fallen in line with speaking in the prophetic voice, and there's nothing wrong with the prophetic voice. Like I said, this is one of the things that we see happening in Scripture. But the point is, I don't think it's actually been working really well in this moment in our culture. And because we don't have an imagination for speaking persuasively or pastorally, we think the only thing we can do is just turn up the volume on our prophetic voice. Mm-hmm. So we end up sounding like an ugly American who's you know, speaking to someone in a foreign country they don't understand, so you just speak English louder. But you can't imagine actually speaking in a different sort of voice or speaking a different language. And I think that's what we need to begin thinking about, is saying, hey, wait a minute, perhaps we could adopt a posture that was um, faithful to the truth, but on the other hand, more in the tone of a pastoral or persuasive posture, giving people a little bit more room to stand and also expressing a more direct interest in their concerns, not just simply the declaration of our own uh, you know, truth or perspective. Let me, let me ask you, because this might help us along the way. What ultimately is our goal? Is it to prove that I'm right and they're wrong? Is it to, uh, to fascinate them with my you know, erudition? Is it to um, at least explain faithfully the position that we, we uh, gain from Scripture? Because I think sometimes that informs how we approach that kind of discourse or winsome persuasion. Yeah, I think I think that's a great point, and I and I would really kind of attach the last thing you said that a, a big part of what we want to do is just faithfully represent the perspective that we have, um, convey it in terms that another person might understand, and all too often we um, well the, we in effect fail to achieve disagreement even, because people, they, they just talk across purposes, and they don't even understand what the other person's views really are. They they hear the beginning of a story, and they go, oh, I know where you're going, and people don't end up getting any insight from the conversation. And so one of the things that I encourage people to do is to, to begin any kind of one of these conversations by, by trying to state the other person's viewpoint um, in a way that they would look at you and nod their head and say, yes, that's right, you understand me. And until I've understood them, I don't think there's much of a point in me sharing my viewpoint. 
And that's a difficult task. Sometimes you're talking to a person who is, you know, got a radically different view of sexual ethics than you do or whatever the topic may be. But to, to read them with a hermeneutic of charity, to understand the things that they're saying, um, and, and to be able to articulate them back to that person the way that they've not to him, so yes, that is what I actually think. Um, and then that invites a posture for them to do the same back to you. Let me understand what my evangelical friend here is actually saying um, from his perspective. And I think we get to kind of set the tone for that conversation by a willingness to say, let me hear and understand the person that I'm actually talking to to begin this whole process. You um, separate the book into three sections, and in the first part, you um, and your co-author, you uh, lay out a theoretical foundation, and you write about counterpublic. Now, that may be an unfamiliar word, and you distinguish counterpublic in general with what a Christian counterpublic uh, is. Explain what that is, why it's important for us to understand it so that we can move forward faithfully. Yeah, so, you know, counterpublics are a notion that uh, people in the com studies, uh, you know, field, communication studies field, have identified as a it's a group of people who um, disagree with the prevailing ethos of their culture on some particular issue, whatever it might be. Maybe we don't feel like there should be, um, you know, certain kinds of, of movies available in the public, and, and they are, and so we, we want to speak against that sort of a thing. So uh, uh, sometimes we simply do the kind of prophetic voice shouting in the wilderness, but a counter-public is actually, number one, a public. It's usually a group of people. And the other thing that goes with a counter-public is you have some sort of positive vision for what the alternative might look like. And so the counter-public begins to cultivate that within their own life as a group, and then offered as a bit of a model to the outside world to say, hey, there's a different way we could do this. I think abortion uh, groups have done this well to the extent that they've been involved in caring for people who um, are having crisis pregnancies and things like that. And they say, hey, let's come around and, al- and offer an alternative positive vision for what might be able to happen with, Absolutely. A, with a teenage pregnancy. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. Again, we're talking about the book, Winsome Persuasion, Christian Influence in a Post-Christian World. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm having a conversation with Dr. Rick Langer. He's the co-author of Winsome Persuasion, Christian Influence in a Post-Christian Culture. It's eminently practical to help us think through, uh, first of all, the importance of engaging and then how we do that in a way that is, as the uh, title suggests, winsome persuasion. Now, one of the things that I find is that many uh, believers today decide that they're simply not going to engage the culture at all out of fear. What do you say about um, that fear that if we just simply fail to speak, if we uh, choose not to engage, we can sort of stay in our safe place? Yeah, you know, I think that's a real danger. Um, you know, it, it, it may not be the best of times, but the bottom line, this is our times, and we haven't been given any other time or place mm-hmm. by God than the ones that we have. And so if we aren't faithful to speak here and now, we simply won't be faithful. So, you know, I'm a fan of speaking up regardless of the fact that it may not be understood or appreciated by the world around us. I just think it's an obligation that we, you know, that we owe Christ uh, just out of sheer faithfulness. In the second half of the book, you write about um, uh, ways to effectively craft our message so that others will consider it. And that is so much of of the challenge for us, is not only to craft a message, but in a way that um, others will listen. Talk a bit about how we begin to prepare to speak in such a way, 
um, that we can, in fact, engage the culture effectively and maintain our our um, status as followers of Christ. Yeah, you know, I think one of the, the key things, that, and I learned this from Tim, my co-author, who, who is a communication studies professor, and he's, he's huge on saying you've got to understand your audience uh, before you talk. And, and part of that is to say, you know, what are the things that, that these people hold valuable and hold dear? And in all likelihood, there's more you have in common with them than you think on mm-hmm. that point. We, we as Christians have an act for kind of viewing ourselves as being outcast or rejected by society. But, but people tend to hold in common a lot of core values even now. And so people care about the safety of their children. People care about the integrity of their community. They care about honesty and responsibility. And, and usually you can find common ground uh, to, to make that kind of the thin edge of your wedge to begin the conversation. The other thing that's enormously helpful is, is humor. Uh, it, it dismantles uh, a lot of barriers and boundaries to be able to laugh together, and particularly helpful actually is to be able to laugh at yourself, mm-hmm. to be able to point out, yeah, you know, sometimes we're different, we're weird, whatever. Uh, these are some of the things that kind of lower the, the boundaries uh, that, that have kind of been erected. And we live in a culture, they call it the argument culture a lot of times, and talk radio and a lot of other aspects of our culture are really built around sort of a tension um, that drives ratings, and so that becomes kind of our ethos, and we think that's the way we need to talk in all contexts. And flaming and social media and things of that nature have become really destructive to the idea of just simply having peaceful civil discourse with another person. And I think we need to be, as Christians, people who say, hey, wait a minute, we want to recover that art. We want to be practitioners uh, of that. And let me begin by understanding the person I'm talking to and talking about, you know, points of attachment and connection I might have. And that's so important. What you're suggesting is relationship and community. And when we have, when we're polarized, we've taken our corner of the room. It's difficult to know more than, uh, the fact that we we disagree on a particular point. How do we how do we build that kind of relationship that gives us the opportunity to learn more about people with whom we disagree on some subjects and perhaps better understand where we agree? Yeah, I you know I um, often talk to my students about this, and I just ask them to imagine that they're talking to a you know like a activist from a gay LGBT, LGBTQ community or something like that, and say okay. Let's just imagine you're having a conversation with that person and, and ask them, what are three things you wish that the evangelical community would understand about the gay community, for example? And just listen to them, talk about that. And then hopefully they might ask you the same question. Well, what, what do you wish that the gay community would understand about the evangelical community? And adopting that posture of being able to kind of, kind of it takes a measure of humility mm-hmm. and then also a measure of authentic interest to say, you know what, this is a person worthy of my attention. This is a person worthy of my love. Let me hear what they really think. And I think that's uh, one of the best barriers to, uh, you know, the best ways to remove some of the barriers between people is to really begin by listening and begin by by authentically loving them. You Um, uh, you learn a lot that way. As I mentioned in the introduction, you also use history, uh, examples rather, from history, William Wilberforce, uh, and others, what can we learn from history in our current day that will help us to move forward as you've described? Yeah, you know, one of the reasons we use those examples is that sometimes people feel like, hey, you're backing off from the prophetic voice or something. You know, we need to be faithful to uh, to our heritage and the, the torch that's from past us. And part of what we wanted to point out is that, hey, we have an incredible heritage of Christians who have spoken in very creative ways to the 
communities in which they've been a, a, a part. And, it, you know, one interesting example is uh, the one that we talked about with, uh, with St. Patrick, who ends up on the island of Ireland at a time when it is one of the most violent uh, cultures you could possibly imagine. You have these pirate chieftains who are constantly award each other, and their primary trade is actually, you know, going off to England to to capture people, to bring them back as slaves, and it just is a, a violent, brutal, difficult culture. And that was the place where Patrick went. And the thing that he did was he began to build small communities that operated off a different set of rules. It, you know, they, they would make kind of a wall around their monastic community, but it wasn't a wall to keep people out. It was more like the line that you draw on a playing field, and you just say, you know, within this boundary, the rules of the kingdom of heaven apply. Um, so we don't we don't kill those who we are angry with, but rather we forgive. We love even our enemies, and that's how we will live within the boundary of this community that we've created. And if you'd like to come join us, please do that. Um, and so you had people in this violent culture who began to see a place where violence wasn't necessary. It isn't the way you had to live. And they began to live kind of holistic life. It became a community where they, they raised sheep and they um, you know, cultivated uh, you know, crafts and food and things like this, and it was very attractive. And people would come, and Patrick would he came with 12 believers, and he'd basically plant a church, uh, leave two of those folks behind, pick up a couple of the new folks, and go on to the next settlement. And within 28 years, he basically converted almost a third of Ireland simply by modeling faithful community life uh, and what that might look like, giving people, in effect, a, a foretaste of the kingdom of heaven by the kind of Christian colonies that he built in close proximity to these Irish settlements. In the third segment of your book, you um, address pressing questions for Christian counterpublics, and each of you takes on the subject of the Supreme Court decision legalizing same-sex marriage uh, to help sort of model how we might think through a difficult and thorny subject uh, in our day. And then you um, conclude the book with uh, a guided conversation and how we engage each other. Um, In the few moments that we have uh, remaining, uh, what's at stake if we fail to seize this opportunity in this time that God has given us to to, um, winsomely persuade the culture by our conduct and by our words? What's at stake here? Well, you know, I think areas of sexual ethics um, have a huge ramification for every part of a, of a society. Um, and part of, I, I hear sometimes Christians just saying, well, hey, you know, Christians can still be, you know, traditional Christian marriage, and who cares what the culture does? And I would like to say, well, I think we should care what our culture does, because these sorts of decisions have a huge impact on the next generation, uh, both the way the next generation may be reared, but also the simple existence of, of the next generation. When you begin to dismantle marriage, you actually fail to produce the next generation. And you're seeing this happen in Western Europe right now, where birth rates are about 33% below uh, zero population growth. So they are having a radical decrease in the population, and that has huge impacts on the health of the society, everything from economically to, uh, you know, again, to the, the raising production of children. And I think as we dismantle and, and uh, experiment with all kinds of different ways of structuring our society, our, our sexual relationships, and our most uh, central social relationships like the family itself, 
it ends up being destructive to society as a whole, not just to the Christian church, but the society as a whole. Again, the book is titled Winsome Persuasion, Christian Influence in a Post-Christian World. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thanks for having me. It's great to be able to be with you. Appreciate it very much. Again, Dr. Rick Langer, he's the co-author of Winsome Persuasion. News and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Later this hour, we'll talk with Matt Staver. He's the founder and chairman of Liberty Council. We'll talk about the Supreme Court ruling in favor of Trinity Lutheran Church versus Comer, in that case. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court's decision to hear the Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission. Both of those cases with Matt Staver. Also, we'll talk with Marie Fishpaw. She's the director of domestic studies at the Heritage Foundation. We'll talk about the Senate health care bill. It's better than the status quo, but it misses some major opportunities, and we'll look at uh, how that measures up with the House version and what's likely to happen next. Now we talk with Hans von Spakovsky, who's an authority on a wide range of issues responding to the Supreme Court's decision to review President Trump's revised travel ban. Now, for those of you who aren't aware, on Monday, the court agreed to hear the government's appeal of the so-called travel ban shortly after it reconvenes on October the 2nd. Well, the court uh, tipped its hand, indicating that it's likely to side with the administration, uphold the traditional deference that it's had with other branches of government when it comes to immigration and national security. We're talking about the rule of law and the separation of powers. Hans von Spakovsky joins us. He's an authority on a wide range of issues, including civil rights, civil justice, First Amendment and immigration. Thank you so much for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having me. Okay, I'm thrilled that the Supreme Court is taking this up, but they're going to reconvene on October the 2nd and take it up sometime then. Will this be a moot point at that uh, at that stage? Well, it might be, but probably not. Um, remember, the, the executive order's uh, whole point was to suspend temporarily for 90 days the entry of people from six terrorist countries. And, of course, by October, the 90 days will be over with. But keep in mind that um, the, the challengers here have also been challenging the fact that the president also put a cap on the number of refugees allowed in the country of 50,000 and that isn't going to change. So I suspect um, the case will still be there in October to be heard. Now, the Immigration and Nationality Act um, passed by Congress in, in one section. Uh, Congress explicitly granted the president the authority to suspend the entry of all aliens or any class of aliens for such a period as he shall deem necessary. Um, where was the question here? I know that statements made by the president and his operatives during the campaign have been brought into this case, which I don't know if that's typical or not. But what's at issue here for those um, uh, judges and courts who have said, no, we're not going to uh, to implement or allow the president to implement his plan? Well, the lower courts really were slapped in the face by the Supreme Court on Monday because they lifted almost all of the injunctions they had issued that prevented the president from enforcing this law. In essence, what the lower courts had done was to extend constitutional rights to foreign aliens with, who've never been in the country, have no connection to the country. And in fact, what the court did on Monday is they issued a stay. That means they lifted the injunction to the extent that it prevents the, the president, through his executive order, from preventing the entry of foreigners with no connection to the U.S. They did leave part of the injunction in place, but 
they really didn't change anything that the government was doing. What, what they did say was that individuals who have a credible, bona fide relationship with someone in the United States, they would still have to be considered for a visa. The court didn't say that they have to be let in, simply that the government had to consider them for visa. And, and what they meant by that was they said people with a close family relationship or perhaps someone who's been offered a job or employment in the U.S. there, they're going to have to consider them. But this isn't really a setback to the government because the executive order uh, had a waiver program just like that that allowed people from these six countries to uh, apply and ask for a waiver of the 90-day suspension if they had you know, business, professional relationships, family relationships in the United States. So at this point, what is the president, what is the administration allowed to do, essentially implement what uh, the executive order, at least the second version of it, uh, suggested? Um, or are they not permitted to, over the next 90 days, uh, do anything at all, which has been the status up to this point? Oh, no, they're allowed to uh, put the 90-day suspension in place. Uh, they, uh, they can prevent foreigners that have no uh, connections in the United States. They can prevent them com- from coming in entirely. And the only thing they do have to consider for entry and granting of visas are individuals who can demonstrate, uh, as the court said, a bona fide relationship with somebody in the United States. Now, with regard to the other element that's uh, still in question, putting a cap on the number of refugees that can come into the country, under the previous administration, numbers were given, this is how many will be allowed. Is it a matter of semantics in that uh, there were numbers bandied about then, uh, as opposed to the, the restriction on the number that comes in? Is there a marked difference between what the previous administration announced and what this administration has said? No, only in, only in the quantity. I mean, the president in his last year allowed in a little bit over 100,000 refugees. But if you actually looked at the average number of refugees uh, let in every year for the past couple of de- decades, it averaged anywhere between fifty and 75,000 a year. So the 50,000 cap that, that President Trump put in isn't that much out of the ordinary. And yet again... All these challengers went to court saying that it was somehow unconstitutional, if you can imagine that, for the president to put a cap on the number of refugees coming in. The, the Supreme Court on Monday, again, they, they uh, lifted the part of the injunction that said that the 50,000 cap couldn't be enforced, and they said, yes, it can be enforced, again, under the same rule. Refugees uh, that have no connection to the U.S. do not have to be let in. Refugees that do have a relationship with someone in the U.S., they have to be considered for entry. So let's fast forward to October 2nd when the Supreme Court reconvenes. Now, obviously, that's probably not going to be their first order of business, although it might. Um, what might we expect when the court is back in session? Are, are they likely to put this at the head of the line uh, to rule on this quickly? What might we expect? Yeah, I think they will uh, uh, set oral arguments very soon. Uh, I, I would think maybe even within the first week that they start in October. And I would expect that we would get a decision fairly quickly because I, I, the court clearly recognizes 
that this is a very important case, uh, particularly for the national security of the United States. Like they talk about this in the order. Uh, the other thing that people should should notice, and this really didn't get talked about a lot in the media, was that this is what's called a per curiam decision. That means the entire court, all nine justices, agreed with lifting the injunctions. So even the liberal justices on the court clearly thought the lower courts had gone way too far. Huh. Well, it will be interesting to see what uh, what happens when the court convenes on October the 2nd, but perhaps more interestingly, what uh, happens over the next 90 days uh, as the administration moves forward with its uh, with its plan. Yeah, I agree. It's going to be a hot summer, I think. <laughs> yeah, isn't it, though? Hey, thank you so much for joining. It's always a pleasure. Sure thing, Georgine. Thanks. Again, Hans von Spakovsky uh, with the Heritage Foundation is an authority on a wide range of issues, including civil rights, civil justice, the First Amendment, immigration, and so on. Uh, the Supreme Court making a, a pronouncement yesterday that will allow the president's travel ban to move forward. Uh, and then on October the 2nd, uh, we'll take up the issue uh, more formally, formally and uh, presumably um, would endorse the uh, the executive's uh, capacity to make that uh, very ruling. By that time, uh, we know the 90 days will have expired and the travel ban will be lifted. So uh, while the timing seems a bit peculiar, apparently it's meaningful that the court will ultimately take that up. Up next, we're going to talk with Matt Staver, founder and chairman of Liberty Council, a couple of Supreme Court rulings, I should say one ruling and one decision, the ruling in favor of Trinity Lutheran and the decision to take up the uh, Masterpiece Cake Shop case in uh, Colorado. That and more when we return. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, in a big win for religious liberty, the Supreme Court ruled on Monday in favor of Trinity Lutheran Church's case against the state of Missouri. That case involved discrimination by the state in giving out public funded grants. In an opinion by Chief Justice John Roberts, seven members of the court agreed that Missouri had violated the Constitution's free exercise clause. We're going to talk about that in just a moment, but we're also going to talk about the fact that the United States Supreme Court, they've agreed to hear Masterpiece Cake shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission to decide whether the government can force a cake artist, in this case in Lakewood, Colorado, to use his artistic talents to create a wedding cake celebrating a same-sex ceremony. Now, the case is going to be heard in the fall. It could have wide implications regarding the clash between religious freedom and the LGBT agenda, including laws that add sexual orientation and gender identity across the country. Here to talk with us about both cases is Matt Staver. He's the founder and chairman of Liberty Council. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Let's start with the uh, case that began in 2012 when Trinity Lutheran Church applied for a Missouri Department of Natural Resources grant. It was meant to help public and private schools, nonprofit daycare centers, nonprofit entities buy rubber playground surface uh, surfaces made from recycled tires. And they were told uh, Lutheran, um, the Trinity Lutheran Church was told they were ineligible. Let's take it from there. Remind our listeners of the case and what happened. Yeah, the church wanted to obviously protect their young children that play in the playground, so they wanted to be a part of this recycled surface of the recycled tires, the resurfacing of the playgrounds. So when they applied for the grant, they actually qualified in some of the top tiers, so they would otherwise have been recipient of the grant, but they were told the only reason why they didn't get the grant is because they're a church. And in Missouri, there is a provision in their state constitution, several states have this, it's called the so-called Blaine Amendment, and it's a 
no funding at all toward religion kind of amendment. It goes back to the 1800s and early 1900s when U.S. Senator Blaine wanted to amend the First Amendment to make it broader in order to literally attack private parochial schools, particularly Catholic schools. And that never passed in the Senate or the House. So he then went to the local state levels, and some of these states passed it. And as a result, Missouri is one of those states. So the state of Missouri said, we're going to not give you any kind of funding because you're a church, and even though it's an equal basis, equal treatment, you qualified, you're disqualified because you're a church. That's the case that was before the U.S. Supreme Court. And surprisingly, there were seven justices of the nine that actually sided with the church. So it's a huge religious liberty victory. Well, it certainly is. Um, Only two justices were dissenting, um, but they they pointed to the fact that, and I'm quoting um, Justice Roberts, the exclusion of Trinity Lutheran from a public benefit for which it would otherwise be qualified solely because it is a church is odious to our Constitution all the same and cannot stand. So what they argued was that uh, unless the state can demonstrate uh, it has an interest of the highest order. It cannot discriminate against religious institutions, in this case, a daycare or churches uh, specifically. Yeah, and when the court says that, rarely does the government ever succeed in meet, meeting its burden because it reaches what's called the level of strict scrutiny, and the burden is on the government. It's a heavy burden, uh, and only rarely can the government ever meet that burden. Here, it was clearly a targeting of the church because it's a church. Now, the interesting thing, in addition to the fact that this will affect a number of states with regards to similar amendments in their constitutions, and these amendments have been a thorn in the side for a number of years. I know an amendment like this one time some years ago was used to strike down vouchers in Florida. Florida legislature came back and passed a different kind of voucher system. But it was used to strike down vouchers because sometimes the parents would select private Christian schools to send their son or daughter. And that was struck down under a similar kind of broad Blaine Amendment in the Constitution. So these will have a broad impact, not just for the resurfacing of playgrounds, but also I think they'll have a broad impact on state vouchers. Also, I think it'll have an impact in other areas as well. For example, if if the court had gone... Yeah, Georgiana, if the court had gone the wrong way in this case, the implications could have been staggering, particularly for religiously affiliated hospitals that are associated with churches. They treat patients that have Medicaid or Medicare funding. Well, that's a federal and or combination of state funding. And if you broaden this uh, Blaine Amendment out and go to its logical conclusion, these hospitals wouldn't be able to receive Medicaid or Medicare funding for these patients. And these patients would be kicked out in the cold with no medical recourse. So this is a good decision and a broad-reaching decision in so many ways. Excellent. Well, let's talk about the uh, the other decision made by the Supreme Court. They've agreed to hear uh, Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission and decide whether the government can force uh, this cake artist from Lakewood, Colorado, to use his artistic talents to create a wedding cake celebrating same-sex marriage, which he cannot support because of his Christian faith. Yeah, this is a big case. Yes. We argued sometime in the fall, and the decision will come down sometime in 2018. I would hope, however, 
that we would have somebody besides Justice Kennedy on the bench. There's a lot of rumors that he's going to retire. He has not yet announced his retirement. I think it'll be within the next year. could be this summer. But, you know, he has been a swing vote on so many of these critical issues, and you really can't know where he's going to be on this particular issue. It's going to be a real collision between religious freedom on the one hand, which the cake baker has a sincerely held religious belief not to participate and use his artistic talents to promote a same-sex ceremony or wedding. And on the other hand, the so-called LGBT agenda, particularly those states that have sexual orientation or gender identity or both in their local or state uh, non-discrimination laws. And that's really what is that issue here. It'll have huge implications uh, across the country. Now, you know, we will have Justice Gorsuch on the panel, Mm -hmm. and uh, I'm very, very pleased with what I've seen already. In the case that was decided with regards to the Church, he issued a concurring opinion, and he's very, very precise, and it's very clear that he is going to be adhering to the original understanding of the Constitution, so I'm glad he's on the bench. I think he's going to be a major leader in judicial philosophy in focusing the court to rely upon the original understanding of the Constitution. But Kennedy's still there, and Mm -hmm. of course we just don't know how long he's going to be there. I wish we had someone like Gorsuch to replace him in time for this upcoming decision or this argument and then later decision. I wanted to mention that the Colorado Supreme Court declined to take up the case. Uh, They uh, upheld the appeal, uh, or rather affirmed the Colorado Civil Rights Commission decision that was uh, back in May of 2014. And I I want listeners to know that the, the commission had ordered Phillips and his employees, many of whom were family members, to create cakes that celebrate same-sex ceremonies to comply with the Anti-Discrimination Act by re-educating his staff and filing quarter, uh, quarterly compliance reports for two yeah. years to demonstrate their compliance. Yeah, it was pretty egregious. You know, this baker doesn't even bake cakes for Halloween because he has a religious objection to that as well, to celebrate something uh, that is... Um, that celebrates demons and other kinds of witches and things like that. So he exercises his religious beliefs in a wide variety of ways. He should have the right to do it. What he ultimately did was he got uh, fined and punished and by these uh, Colorado Civil Rights Commission. Like you're saying, a re-education program is just unbelievable. So what he ultimately chose to do is to get out of the wedding cake business. He still bakes cakes but not for weddings. And so he's literally stepped out of the marketplace, if you will, rather than violate his religious liberty. So it is a good case with regards to the facts. It's an unfortunate case with regards to what Mm. we're seeing happening around the country. He's not an isolated case, as you well know. These kinds of collisions are happening everywhere, and that's why this decision next year before the high court is going to have a huge widespread implication. Yeah, absolutely. We have an infamous case here in Oregon, and certainly our or a state to the north, uh, Washington as well. Um, I know the Supreme Court can rule broadly. It can rule very narrowly. Uh, do you anticipate that this is likely going to have broad implications because of the nature of this particular case? I think unless they kick it out because of some kind of technical issue, which I don't foresee happening, this will have broad implications. I mean, at the one hand, you've got a, a baker with an sincerely held religious belief. He applies it not just in this area of marriage, but also in other areas, like I said, in Halloween. And he has a, an egregious penalty that's been assessed against him. And on the other hand, you got this newly uh, created sexual orientation uh, as part of the law there in Colorado. And you, you're combining, on the one hand, you're, this collision of this longstanding free exercise that is 
enshrined in the First Amendment with a newly created sexual orientation issue that has been enacted in an ordinance or a state statute. And, and I think that the court is going to have a serious issue before, but I think mm-hmm. at the end of the day, if you're just looking at the laws and the facts, it's a no-brainer. You should come down on the side of the religious freedom. There's no way that you should force a baker like this or a florist or a photographer to use their artistic talents to participate in and promote something that collides with the religious freedom. We wouldn't want them to promote something like a KKK rally. And why would we want them to promote something that otherwise collides directly with the religious freedom? Well, we'll certainly watch that case with great interest and celebrate the other case regarding Trinity Lutheran. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. My pleasure. Appreciate it. Again, Matt Staber is the founder and chairman of Liberty Council. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Marie Fishpaw. She's the director of domestic studies at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about the Senate health care bill. She says it's better than the status quo, but misses some major opportunities. We'll talk about what those opportunities might be. And you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. As you know, the Senate health care bill was released. We have a, a CBO a rating of it. Uh, we also know that it's not going to be passed in the Senate anytime soon. But what's in it and does it measure up to what the Senate and the, Repu- and the Republicans in the House, for that matter, uh, have promised? Here to help us better understand what's in it, what's lacking, is Marie Fishpaw. She's the Director of Domestic Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us. Good to be here. Thank you for having me. Now, most of us have heard some things about the Senate version of the health care bill that is supposed to repeal and replace Obamacare or at least make uh, adjustments. First of all, let me ask you your general impression of uh, the health care bill and the CBO rating. Sure. So the bill moving through Congress is, in our view, better than the status quo because it starts to undo Obamacare's damage which drove up premium costs for insurance plans and reduced people's ability to access the plan. We think it's better because it repeals most of Obamacare's taxes. It repeals regulations like the individual and employer mandates and lets state waive insurance mandates. And then it provides historic Medicaid reform we think will help the program focus on the most vulnerable. So while the bill doesn't get the job done fully, uh, we do think it's a good step in the right direction that uh, helps Congress begin to take advantage of every opportunity to undo the damage Obamacare caused. I want to talk about some of the things that some of the opportunities that might be missed in this version of it. But before I do that, how does this stack up with the House version um, that has already passed? Mm-hmm. So the bills are, are pretty similar. Uh, we think that the Senate bill goes a bit farther than the Senate than the House bill. Excuse me to begin to give states the ability to have control over their markets and regulate insurance the way they did before Obamacare came in and caused significant damage. As you mentioned, this is better than the status quo. I think we can agree on that. Uh, But the CBO report indicated that some 21 million people will not have health insurance as a consequence of this bill. I think that's somewhat misleading if you don't put it in context. For example, in the absence of the mandate, A good number of those people, I would assume, are people who simply decide not to exercise their right to have or their uh, their ability to have health insurance, but are not uh, are not facing a penalty if they decide not to do so. Is that at least a partial explanation for the number? That's some of it, and you know what what we think is the CBO report indicates 
that as you begin to undo the damage Obamacare did, as you begin to put in reforms that let states uh, control their own insurance markets and come up with the right solutions that will help drive down premiums and increase access to plans, that premiums do come down. So, yes, it's notoriously difficult to estimate the the large-scale impacts of health reform, but we're encouraged by those signs. And in the absence of a mandate where there's actually a penalty for failing to acquire health care, does that mean it's going to have an adverse impact on the on premiums, that it's going to go up because people will wait, for example, until uh, they're really sick to get the health care that they might otherwise have had and sustained over a period of time? Well, it, it's true that Obamacare's mandate to, to have people buy insurance was intended to, um, in, to encourage people to purchase insurance before they got sick. That approach has failed. We think the Senate needs to go farther in encouraging people to have insurance, but we want to see them give the states the, the flexibility they mm-hmm. need to experiment there. There's lots of great ideas out there, and we think it's most important to put the states back in charge of figuring this out. Well, let's talk about some of the missed major opportunities in the Senate health care bill. What do you think should be there that isn't at present or could be added uh, during these uh, negotiating days uh, after the 4th of July? Mm-hmm. So we would like to see the good things in the bill kept, so keep, keep repealing Obamacare's taxes, keep repealing the individual employer mandates, and keep the historic Medicaid reforms that will ensure the program focuses on the most vulnerable. The places we'd like to see them go farther are, uh, to your point earlier, uh, to, to give the states the ability to encourage continuous coverage so that people will uh, stay, have the, the reason to buy insurance before they get sick. We'd also like to see them do more to help people currently on Medicaid get off the government-run plans they're stuck in today and into private insurance by converting the funds for that program into premium support so they can buy a mainstream private plan. Are you optimistic that uh, now that there's more time on the Senate side to reflect on uh, the, the bill, that their version of the health care reform, uh, that some of these uh, initiatives that you've mentioned might be included, or do you think it will ultimately be a better bill because of the time that's now being uh, taken? I, I think that they're all signs point in the direction that the bill is improving. The Senate recently put out some improvements that would encourage states to uh, encourage, excuse me, it would encourage states to incentivize individuals to keep their coverage continuously. The we know they're going back to have more conversations, and at the end of the day, it's important that this bill pass because it is better than keeping Obamacare on the books as it is today. I know that there have been some skeptics, primarily on the other side of the political aisle, uh, that believe that the states are incapable of coming up with uh, plans that are sufficient for uh, their residents. What do you say to critics who say this is really the function of the federal government and we shouldn't have a variety of different plans across the country um, what do you think about the, the idea that the states would manage a, a major portion of what this tax reform or, excuse me, health care reform will look like? Sure. So states were regulating health insurance long before Obamacare came along. So there really isn't a need for the federal government to do it. And if you look at the consequences of Obamacare, it's, there's a good case to be made that they've seriously messed it up. So, for example, premiums have more than doubled since 2013. Carriers continue to leave, so people don't have a choice of their plan. And 44 counties in this country have little or no choice of plan, and this trend keeps going on. So 
the people most hurt by the situation from Obamacare have been the self-employed and small business employees. They're bearing the full brunt of all these increased costs and insurers leaving the market. Mm-hmm. The other thing I wanted to ask you about is Medicaid reform. Um, Medicaid has a, a specific intention, and in many cases it's been expanded beyond recognition so that people who would historically not have been eligible for Medicaid as it was traditionally defined are now eligible for it. What are your thoughts uh, on critics suggesting that um, by reforming Medicaid, by restricting it or constricting it back to a, a closer version of its original uh, purpose, that that is, uh, is going to undermine the health care and access uh, to Americans across the country? Mm-hmm. So I, I think this bill makes important changes that will ensure the safety net is there for the people who need it most. And Medicaid was a program designed in the middle of the last century. It's consistently has shown that People on the program have less access to doctors and less access to quality care. <clears throat> and when Obamacare expanded the program and poured millions of people into it, able-bodied people, it paid more money to states to put those people on the program than it did to pay for the people who most need it, so the elderly, blind, and disabled. And this bill begins to address those issues and ensures that the program will look at the people who need the the um, who need this help more than others first. Well, of course, the Senate version of health care reform and the House version of health care reform will have to be reconciled at some point. Generally speaking, are you optimistic that ultimately um, the uh, the House and the Senate are going to pass what is uh, repeal and replace of Obamacare, even if it's perhaps requires some tweaking into the future? Are we going to see that this time around? Well, I certainly hope so. The the bill that they're looking at is is better than the status quo because the status quo is keeping Obamacare and we're seeing that it's it's an unsustainable situation because premium costs are rising, the people don't have access to plans and and while yes this doesn't this bill does not get the job done fully, it's definitely better than the status quo and I hope that Congress takes every opportunity to move forward to undo the damage Obamacare caused starting with this bill. This may be at this point a moot point, but I think it's a little frustrating to people that with all of the years of criticizing Obamacare and what should have been done, the expectation was the Republicans were going to roll something out that they've been working on for the last seven, eight years. Your thoughts on why it's taken this kind of back and forth in the House and the Senate with the White House to get a health care plan uh, passed? Well, there's a lot of a focus on making sure that the bill that does pass protects the vulnerable in a transition and, and provides for a smooth glide path to the next step. Obamacare has caused a lot of damage, and unwinding that damage requires thought mm-hmm. and deliberation. So if you look how long it took uh, Obama to pass Obamacare in the first place, it, it took a lot longer than where we are right now. So um, in terms of making progress, I think we're at, we're at a point where people are really taking a hard look at the decisions they have to make in order to make sure that we have a good step forward as we start to undo Obamacare's damage. Well, we certainly hope that will be the case. Marie Fishpaw, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. Appreciate it very much. Again, Marie Fishpaw is the Director of Domestic Policies, or Studies, rather, at the Heritage Foundation. Up next, we're going to talk about a nonprofit tracker that's removed hate group labels from some conservative organizations. We talked about it last week. We'll find out what they're going to do, at least as they put it, for the time being. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. I mentioned last week that the nation's leading source of information on U.S. charities had been influenced by the Southern um, Poverty Law Center and had listed a number of conservative organizations as hate groups. Well, we learned uh, today that the uh, the group, the source of that information, announced that it will modify its use of a controversial hate group designation, enlisting some of the, the uh, most well-known and broadly supported conservative nonprofits. Now, the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, annotations from these 46 organizations, for the time being, they said they've decided to remove uh, those annotations. That's what the statement uh, read. It was posted on GuideStar's website. Well, the change will be implemented during the week of June 26th of 2017. In the meantime, we will make this information available to any users on request. Now, I'm not sure what they mean by that. Uh, this information available to any users on request. If it's still posted in one way and you have to request the update, it's not clear to me. But GuideStar calls itself a neutral aggregator of tax data on charities. And they recently incorporated the hate group labels produced by the Southern Poverty Law Center. I mentioned uh, in my conversation on this subject last week that that organization is responsible for some of the violent uh, events that have recently taken place. Um, the uh, designation inspired some 41 conservative leaders to protest that move, asking GuideStar in a letter last week to remove the flagging. Well, in an interview with the Daily Signal last week, William Jerry Boykin, and I quoted at the time, a retired Army general who's the executive director of the Family Research Council, said GuideStar's messaging is not neutral. He says that uh, GuideStar says that they are neutral, but they are anything but. In fact, I would say at this point, they're becoming an arm of the ultra-left. Well, the Conservatives letter dated the 21st and directed to GuideStar's president and CEO Jacob Harold, who's described as GuideStar's on uh, GuideStar's website as a social change strategist, asked the website to drop the designation label uh, put on 46 organizations. Before joining GuideStar, Harold worked for the Hewlett Foundation's philanthropy program as a climate change campaigner for Rainforest Action Network and Greenpeace USA, and as an organizing director of Citizen Works. Well, organizations represented on the letter included the Family Research Council, the American Freedom Defense Initiative, the Immigration Reform Law Institute, the American College of Pediatricians, the National Task Force for Therapy Equality, the American Family Association, the London Center for Policy Research, the Jewish Institute for Global Awareness, and others. Signers of the letter pointed to um, recent history and noted that hate group designations propagated by the Southern Poverty Law Center and adopted by GuideStar can have serious implications. I uh, mentioned last week and will repeat that Floyd uh, Corkins, the man convicted in 2012 of attempting to massacre employees at the Family Research Council, was inspired by the Southern Poverty Law Center's description of the Christian pro-life pro-family research organization as a hate group. In an interview with the FBI, he said uh, a list on the Southern Poverty Law Center's website motivated his attack, a connection which they acknowledged. Well, the signers also noted that the James T. Hodgkinson, the man who police say tried to gun down Republican lawmakers uh, earlier this month during practice for a congressional baseball game, had also, uh, this is outside uh, Washington and Alexandria, Virginia, liked the uh, Southern Poverty Law Center on Facebook as well. Well, House Majority Whip Steve Scalise was gravely wounded in the gunman's attack. Four others were injured, as you'll recall. Well, among the signers of this uh, letter, Dated the 21st of June was Edmund Fulner, founder and president of the Heritage Foundation, the parent organization of the Daily Signal. Two other fixtures of the conservative think tank, 
The signers asked Herald that GuideStar return to its prior non-political approach to evaluating nonprofit organizations. Please send your reply within one week of receipt of this letter. End quote. Well, the self-described neutral aggregator announced it would continue to navigate the political spectrum and evaluate how to move forward. We hope to engage in a constructive dialogue with experts from across the political spectrum to help us un- uh, to determine rather the best way to fulfill this need. GuideStar's press release said. So GuideStar is redefining, uh, it would appear, its um, its role of determining or providing information for those looking to uh, donate to nonprofits. Uh, its function of not just saying this is an organization that functions within the guidelines uh, that we've established, but now their uh, political perspective uh, is very likely um, if, if this um, decision does not hold. And they said for the meantime, they'll remove that designation. So it could change a lot of things for conservative organizations continuing to move uh, the notion that uh, to hold certain points of view are essentially uh, criminal and should not be supported, even from a neutral arbiter aggregator of, of that kind of information. So we'll keep following this story, given the fact that this was not a permanent decision announced this week. Well, as many of you know, Dan Rice, my husband, has been uh, in the hospital. He uh, had an infection in his blood that has impacted his heart valve. And some of you who've been listeners for a while know that he's had uh, two heart valve replacement surgeries and a third that was designed to repair a heart valve that had just been placed a month and a half earlier. Um, the concern is always uh, keeping that area of his heart, that artificial heart valve, free from any kind of infection. Well, this uh, latest episode resulted in what they refer to as vegetation on that heart valve. Uh, He was permitted to come home late yesterday, and uh, it's just a delight to have him back. But he comes with some apparatus that that, uh, he has a pick line. Some of you will know what that means. It's a line that runs up the length of his arm, across his shoulder, and down into the vena cava, Uh, so that antibiotics can flood directly into the heart. It spares the stress that that would put on the veins if the antibiotics go directly through the veins because they can break down. But with a a, a pick line, that allows them to run the the antibiotics through that line. It doesn't really touch the vein that the uh, antibiotics don't, and then it floods the heart directly. Well, he'll do that for the next six weeks. I have to tell you, in the, what, eight days he was in the hospital, my husband, who is naturally quite thin, lost 20 pounds. So when Dan Rice loses 20, if I'd lost 20 pounds, we'd be having a party right about now. But Dan Rice, he loses 20 pounds, and it's not a good thing. He's feel, uh, uh, feeling very weak and tired, and my job right now is to try to get as much food back into him as possible, and we're trying to negotiate how to... Uh, administer the antibiotics at the right times, and they, things have to be done in a particular way over, in a particular time frame. And we kind of joked with the home health care um, uh, instructor that, you know, we felt like we were now working for NASA and would qualify as astronauts with all the things we had to learn to make this uh, this work. But with God's help, we've managed to uh, get through the first uh, first day and a half. And so uh, we're confident that we'll be able to move forward. The timing of it is a bit challenging. My morning routine is a bit busier, um, and I'm not sure just how much activity Dan Rice will be uh, capable of continuing uh, with over the next six weeks, but we'll figure all of that out. I do want to thank you for your prayers. I know many of you who don't know my husband, uh, don't know much about either of us, have taken the time to pray, and I, I have to tell you, you can feel that sense of strength that uh, and being buoyed up on the prayers of others when you're discouraged or frustrated or things are not going in the direction that you had anticipated. And we're reminded that 
uh, through many of your comments on Facebook and uh, some of the calls and notes that I've received, um, reminded that we can trust in God, that he is the great physician. And while I'm grateful for the tremendous healthcare professionals that we have encountered at Providence Hospital and now those who are caring uh, in part for Dan at home, I'm so grateful for them. Ultimately, the great physician is the one in whom we've placed our trust, and we are confident that whatever he allows, it is for his glory and our good, and we're going to trust him throughout. So again, I thank you for your prayers, and we're just going to negotiate these next six weeks, as difficult as they may be, uh, with joy and a great sense of humor. And um, again, appreciate your uh, ongoing prayers for uh, for my dear husband, Dan Rice. Well, tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Larry Schweikart. We had actually anticipated a conversation with him last week, and that was the day I found out Dan was going to be hospitalized, and I left before we had a chance to have that conversation. But his book is titled The Politically Incorrect Guide to the American Revolution. We're looking forward to that conversation. And then on Thursday, uh, we're going to talk with Johnny Erickson Tata, uh, this year marks the 50th year that she has been confined to a wheelchair. And while uh, that is no cause for celebration, when you see what God has done as a consequence of that disability, it really is remarkable. For those of you who attended um, Mission Connection this past year when she was the keynote speaker, you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, she's going to join us on Thursday. Looking forward to that conversation, and I hope you will be here as well. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blind for producing, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.